The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. So this will be the last episode I do for at least a month, possibly more, and I just wanted to do a bit of house cleaning before I get started with this episode. Uh, For those who are interested in the series that I recorded last year called Notes from the Grid, you can look in the post description for this episode and see a link on Amazon to order the print copy of Notes from the Grid. It will be $12 and it will be coming out on February 23rd and you are able to pre-order that right now. And as always, the best way to help this podcast, to help it keep going, uh, other than listening and leaving reviews where you can and just passing the word along, is to buy any of the books that I've written. Uh, Probably the one that most people would enjoy is a book of short stories called The Lonely Young and The Lonely Old. And there is a book of poetry, of archaeological poetry, that I've shared with on this podcast a few times, called Bone Antler Stone. And there is also, probably my favorite thing, a long poem called To the House of the Sun. All of those are available on Amazon, and I'll have links in the post description. Now, for this episode, what I wanted to do was sort of a repeat of last week's. Last week was love poetry, wasn't it? Today, and part of the reason I'm taking a break from the podcast for a bit, is because I've been running around rereading lots of books of poetry, finding my favorites. I've been trying to throw them into uh, easily manageable uh, sort of categories. And one of the categories that keeps getting filled up and that I keep finding great poems for is just a category of poem that I call How to Live, where poets talk about what it is they do to get by, the old thing that I've mentioned here many times. How does Homer take out the garbage? What does it mean to live as a poet? What does it mean to live as just a thinking, feeling, sympathetic person who is affected by the news of the world, by anything you see during the day? by friends, family, loved ones, etc., and by other poets, by other art, uh, by other creativity. Um, And I just want to share some of those poems with you today. There will be Seamus Heaney, Wallace Stevens, uh, Galway Cannell, Robinson Jeffers, Louise Glick, and to round it out, there will be uh, Charlotte Bronte, William Butler Yeats, and Henry Vaughan. And yes, in the middle there, I don't want to forget her, is the wonderful poet Edith Nesbitt. And so I invite you, as the last episode that will be here for quite some time, at least a month, as I said, I invite you to go with me for a bit, and let's see the advice that we get from these poets on how we might get along in this strange world of ours.
So we can begin this episode on how to live, poems on how to live, with the poem that gave this episode its title. This is a poem by Wallace Stevens, who lived from 1879 to 1955. And this is his poem called How to Live, What to Do. And it just says this. Last evening, the moon rose above this rock, impure upon a world unpurged. The man and his companion stopped to rest before the heroic height. Coldly the wind fell upon them in many majesties of sound. They that had left the flame-freaked sun to seek a sun of fuller fire. Instead, there was this tufted rock, massively rising high and bare, beyond all trees, the ridges thrown like giant arms among the clouds. There was neither voice nor crested image, no chorister nor priest. There was only the great height of the rock, and the two of them standing still to rest. There was the cold wind, and the sound it made, away from the muck of the land that they had left. Heroic sound, joyous and jubilant and sure. And on the face of it, I suppose that is pure nature. You will get your meaning from nature. But it begins with the idea of the moon, which we usually think of as being uh, something pure, I suppose, uh, rising above the rock impure upon a world unpurged. So the moon and both the world have their issues. In the second stanza, uh, they had left the flame-freaked sun to seek a sun of fuller fire. But instead, not only does the moon fail them, but the sun as well. And they are simply left with this rock, the ridges thrown like giant arms among the clouds. Um, and of course, we get the, the Stevens thing, the early 20th century uh, knock on religion thing. There is neither voice nor crested image, nor no chorister nor priest. But at the same time, we can see what he's getting at, even uh, the voice and the image. Um, even Stevens does not want to set himself up as some equivalent of a priest. He's setting himself up as something else, and he's suggesting that we ought to look for something other than that. Uh, Wallace Stevens should not be the guru either. If we want to look at how to live and what to do, we might as well look at Stevens' life as well. Um, the insurance executive who composed his poems, Walking to Work Each Day, and that is what he did. But then in his letters, seems to be a little bit jealous, perhaps a little bit jealous, of Robinson, uh, not Robinson Jeffers, of uh, Robert Frost's fame and all of the honorary degrees that Robert Frost ran around, ran around the country to get. Um, what Stephen seems to be most enjoying here, uh, or the, the characters in his poem, is the rock and the cold wind and the sound that it made. Away from the muck of the land, there goes the thing about the land again. Uh, the world unpurged at the beginning and the muck of the land at the end. And what seems to 
be the focus is the heroic sound, joyous and jubilant and sure, of the cold wind, the cold wind and the rock. Uh, I imagine that many of the poems that I'm going to read here could, on the face of it, just seem to be saying, well, go run off to nature. That is the thing that will save you. But as far as I'm aware, Stevens never went, even went camping outside of his youth when I think he went to Canada, and that was the only time he left the United States his entire life, I believe. So I don't even think that uh, this is really an image of that either, um, the modern idea of uh, taking the Jeep that you see in the commercial, uh, driving over uh, a bunch of rocks to get to a peak. Um, I don't even think it's an image of just getting out and hiking and finding solitude in nature. It seems to be about something else. And this is one time where I think that Stevens bent for sort of having Zen cones as uh, titles, which is something that he actually said, seems to work. You have to work out how to live, what to do by yourself. What is your equivalent of whatever this image is, whatever this journey is. I don't think that this poem prompted Stevens to go and make his own trip into nature at all, really. And now, though, we can go to something else. And this is by another American poet. This is from Galway Cannell, who lived from 1927 to 2014. And if anybody really did go into nature, it appears to have been uh, Galway Cannell. I've never really cared for a lot of his poetry, but this is something that just bowled me over. This is uh, a poem, a long poem, from a book of his that came out in 1964 called uh, Flower Herding on Mount Monandak. This is a wonderful poem called Tillamook Journal. And just look at how the, uh, how the short lines here just flow on and on and describe this incredible journal. It says, I have come here from Chicago, packing a sleeping bag, a pan to melt snow for drinking, dried apricots, tea, a great boiled beef heart, Two loggers drove me as far in as they could get, two gunny-sack loggers of the burn, owning a truck and a dozer, a few cables and saws, who drag out the sound of heartwood for money. They said there'd been a prospector here a year ago, hunting uranium or gold. They would run across him, a little, swaying heap of gear, with a Geiger counter lashed on, like an extra heart. They said they would find him mumbling about metal while thrashing up some avalanching gravel. Around January he was ready to settle for anything at all. When spring came, he vanished. I set out walking, up to my ankles in gravel, grappling at roots and rocks. At last I was climbing up on my hands and knees, as though I'd come here begging. From the top of Cedar Butte, the whole compass is visible. To the west, the Pacific, lying out flat and shiny, north and east, hill after hill of white snags. 
to the south, white stumps, white logs, washing to the valleys, bleeding scarps, lopped spurs, empty stream beds. The land split and cracked under the crisscross of logging roads, oozing down its ravines. It is 25 years since the first blue-white puff was sighted. Convicts have planted saplings by the coast. Schoolboys have planted by the highway. So far, little catches. To the north, on the hills loggers can't reach, great virgin stands of snags, burnt clean and bleached in the distance, keeping on, blurring to look like smoke. Big, immaculate snowflakes have been coming down, melting and touching. All night, as I lay trying for sleep, I listened to Kilches, the Kilches River, grinding its rocks and boulders. The ravine is a mass of slash slippery with rain and snow. Tree trunks cross and lock each other, blocking the water. Intricately grained rims for the little waterfalls. A mule deer joined me, leading like a scout. When I turned off and climbed, he stopped too, and sadly, I found myself sadly thinking. Watched my going. Birds wrangled and chirped. I was sitting under the last knoll, gnawing the last of the heart, looking back at the burn as it went out in the twilight its crags broken, its valleys soaked in night, another plundered breast of the world. I scrambled to my feet and climbed. I could hear my heart beating in the air around me, and came over the last summit into a dark wind blasting out of the blackness. Behind me snow was still falling. Before me, the Pacific fell with long triple crashes on the shore. It was only steps to the unburnable sea. And what do you make of that? It seems fairly loose, but I think something very specific is going on, although it's hard for me to pin it down. Um, and I wonder what it says next to Stephen's poem as well. For me, it seems to say something like we need to notice all the all the damage, all of the quote-unquote progress that is going on, and somehow that leads to his vision of the sea that he has here. We need to be able to walk among all of this stuff that is going on and to still find the thing that we need. Uh, there is, of course, the idea that uh, especially uh, creative types or just people who are sensitive or people who are religious or spiritual in a way, that you should be able to just run off and uh, leave the city or leave the suburbs and find peace or find whatever it is in nature. And Canal seems to agree that, sure, you can find it in nature. But you're also going to run across the loggers. You're also going to run across uh, all of the changes that have been forced onto the landscape. And somehow you have to make your 
peace with that as well because uh, there's no getting away from it. This last poem in this first batch is by the British poet Edith Nipsett, who lived from 1858 to 1924. And I've always loved this poem. Uh, this is called The Things That Matter. And I wonder what she has to say, how it sounds uh, coming after these two very different American poets, now uh, a British poet. And Edith Nipsett, uh, Nesbitt, sorry, Edith Nesbitt says this. Now that I've nearly done my days and grown too stiff to sweep or sow, I sit and think till I'm amazed about what lots of things I know, things as I found out one by one. And when I'm fast down in the clay, my knowing things and how they're done will all be lost and thrown away. There's things I know as won't be lost, things as folks write and talk about, the way to keep your roots from frost and how to get your ink spots out, what medicine's good for sores and sprains, what way to salt your butter down, what charms will cure your different pains and what will bright your faded gown. But more important things than these, they can't be written in a book, how fast to boil your greens and peas, and how good bacon ought to look. The feel of real good wearing stuff, the kind of apple as will keep, the look of bread that's rose enough, and how to get a child asleep indeed. Um, whether the jam is fit to pot, whether the milk is going to turn, whether a hen will lay or not, is things as some folks never learn. I know the weather by the sky. I know what herbs grow in what lane. And if sick men are going to die, or if they'll get about again. Young wives come in, a smiling grave, with secrets that they itch to tell. I know what sort of times they'll have, and if they'll have a boy or gal. And if a lad is ill to bind, or some young maid is hard to lead, I know when you should speak him kind, and when it's scolding as they need. I used to know where birds had set, and likely spots for trout or hare, and God may want me to forget the way to set a line or a snare, but not the way to truss a chick, to fry a fish, or baste a roast nor how to tell when folks are sick what kind of herb will ease them most. Forgetting seems such silly waste. I know so many little things, and now the angels will make haste to dust it all away with wings. O oh God, you made me like to know. You kept the things straight in my head. Please, God, if you can make it so, let me know something when I'm dead. That's incredible. Uh, Edith Nesbitt, 1858 to 1924. And she brings to mind uh, the, the Russian woman in her mid-twenties that I read from a few weeks ago who wanted to learn, wanted to learn, and wanted to learn, but felt it was too late, who said things like, um, it's too late for me to know anything of literature. All I have is my own diary. 
uh, it was someone who uh, didn't even think or hadn't learned or who had never been told or encouraged to believe that her own story was worth hearing. And Edith Nesbitt seems to have not had that problem. Uh, if we're talking about how to live and what to do, uh, Edith Nesbitt has a good answer, a good catalog answer. It is in the acts of daily life, isn't it? Uh, it is in uh, cooking. It is in getting your kid to go to sleep so you can go and record a podcast. Um, it is in uh, learning medicine, uh, what medicine to give people. Um, it is in trying to know what the weather is without looking at your phone. Um, and it's nice that she she begins the poem. Let's see. Uh, things I found out one by one, and when I'm fast down in clay, my knowing things and how they're done will all be lost and thrown away. Um, and she begins it, and it's sort of a, a casual sort of, even though it rhymes, it's kind of vernacular, and you're meant to see it as being maybe the voice of a simple woman, a simple person. But nothing she says is simple at all. If you don't know these things, um, you're not living your full life, are you? Uh, the way to keep your roots from frost and how to get your ink spots out. What medicine's good for sores and sprains? What way to salt your butter down? What charms will cure your different pains? And what will bright your faded gown? These are the concerns of someone around the year 1900, perhaps, uh, maybe around 1910. And as with many of the catalogs that I give here of my favorite this and that, um, I don't think this is a prescription for all of us to go and salt our butter down. It is to see, well, what is your version of this today? And shouldn't you find something sacred in it? It's the old Zen idea. Well, um, you're, you're wandering around uh, reading out of a book or repeating someone's uh, two or three lines of wisdom, uh, but you don't realize uh, what it is uh, simply to brush your teeth or to eat an apple, or to just uh, wake up in the morning and have your child throw open the curtains and you get the sunlight in. Um, it is all in those small things. And if you don't find it in those small things, you're probably not going to find it anywhere else either in the end, at least not in any satisfactory way. We'll start this next batch of poems about how to live, what to do, with the great Irish poet Seamus Heaney, who lived from 1939 to 2013. And this comes from a long sequence, I believe a 48-poem sequence, called Squarings. And this is the second poem in that sequence. Listen to what Seamus Heaney has to say. Uh, Roof it again. Batten down, dig in, drink out of tin, know the scullery cold, 
a latch, a door bar, forged tongs, and a grate. Touch the crossbeam, drive iron in a wall, hang a line to verify the plumb, from lintel, coping stone, and chimney breast. Relocate the bedrock in the threshold, take squarings from the recessed gable pane, make your study the unregarded floor, sink every impulse like a bolt, secure the bastion of sensation, do not waver into language, do not waver in it. And that last stanza is worth repeating. Uh, it is the key of it to me. Sink every impulse like a bolt. Secure the bastion of sensation. Do not waver into language. Do not waver in it. And of course, Seamus Heaney has to say, do not waver into language. Do not waver in it. At the beginning of what is perhaps his best sequence, his best single poem, which is this 48-poem sequence called Squarings. So you can make of that what you will um, that he does. He wavers into language for another 46 poems. And what he does with it is quite grand. Uh, 48 12-line poems that I think took him about 18 months, maybe, is what he said uh, to write these. Uh, there's the idea that uh, whatever you are, whatever your profession happens to be, you can't be that thing all the time. Uh, if this were perhaps the a poem about a laborer or someone who works in construction, it might be about reading or writing poetry. And it would say, uh, do not waver into labor, perhaps. Do not waver in it. But the idea of securing every, or sinking every impulse like a bolt, securing the bastion of sensation, there's that line that Thomas Merton loved so much uh, from T.S. Eliot, where he heard that for T.S. Eliot, every poem, every idea for a poem was a temptation to him, and he very rarely uh, gave into that temptation. That was someone who did not waver into language hardly at all uh, by the end of it. Um, this is one of my favorite poems of Seamus Heaney's, in a way because the battening down, the digging in, the scullery cold is the landscape of his childhood in Northern Ireland. He is remembering a time when perhaps he didn't waver into language. Perhaps he's remembering a time before he even quite knew how to talk or even read. Uh, there's a great sense in Heaney of uh, where he does sink every impulse like a bolt, where he does secure the bastion of sensation. I've mentioned that remark of his where he says that he translated Beowulf not because he loved Beowulf, but because almost because he didn't love it. He enjoyed it. He liked it but he wasn't uh, grasping onto it for dear life. It was something that he knew that he had a certain distance with anyway, and he felt that that was something that would allow him to perhaps get the poem right. There is a conservatism in that sense, Tahini, 
um, of where he is and is not willing to allow himself to go. And I think this is a great, uh, um, a great expression of that. Sink every impulse like a bolt. Secure the bastion of sensation. Do not waver into language. Do not waver in it. This next poem comes from our old friend on this podcast, Mr. Robinson Jeffers, the great American poet who lived out on the West Coast. And he lived from 1887 to 1962. And this is a fairly early poem in his career, Lightnings, the, or the, the poem I just read from Seamus Heaney comes close to the end of his career. And this comes very early in Robinson Jeffers' career. This is a poem, believe it or not, by Robinson Jeffers that is called Joy. And Robinson Jeffers has this to say. Though joy is better than sorrow, joy is not great. Peace is great. Strength is great. Not for joy the stars burn, not for joy the vulture spreads her gray sails on the air over the mountain. Not for joy the worn mountain stands, while years like water trench his long sides. I am neither mountain nor bird nor star, and I seek joy. That is the weakness of your breed. Yet at length quietness will cover those wistful eyes. It's hard to, uh, to indicate this in reading the poem, but that sentence, I am neither mountain nor bird nor star, and I seek joy, that is in quotation marks. That is someone Jeffers imagines uh, who is uh, having something else to say about his poem. Let's look at it again. Though joy is better than sorrow, joy is not great. Peace is great, strength is great. Not for joy the stars burn, not for joy the vulture spreads her gray sails on the air over the mountain. Not for joy the worn mountain stands, while years like water trench his long sides. And now he has someone interject and say, well, I am neither mountain nor bird nor star, and I seek joy, so what of it? And Jeffers says, the weakness of your breed to seek joy. That is the weakness of your breed. Yet at length, quietness will cover those wistful eyes. And I wonder what, if what Jeffers is also saying is that perhaps, uh, not only is he disagreeing with what this person is saying, but he is perhaps he is perhaps also saying that we are closer to mountain or bird or star, that we don't need to seek joy. We can seek the things that mountain and bird and star seek, if, they, if it is that they do seek anything, that weird and different permanence. And what it actually does is it puts me in mind of something that I mentioned a long time ago on this podcast, where you run across articles every now and then about how to achieve balance in your life, how to achieve that uh, illusory mindfulness that everyone's looking for, how to uh, sort of move the game pieces around so that everything fits, so that there is a sense of serenity or peace in everything that you're doing. 
It strikes me that that might be a mistake, that what we really need to do is learn to live with the chaos as much as we can. We, learn, we need to learn to live with the flux. We need to learn to live uh, away from the idea that we can fix everything, that all we need to do is uh, move this here, move that there, and everything will finally be okay. There are so many examples from the lives of writers and artists and poets, and I'm sure uh, people in all fields, where they're running around like a chicken with its head cut off, right? And they, they sincerely believe, and I'm guilty of this too, I was probably guilty of thinking it today, that if only this, this, or this was happening with my circumstances, I would finally be able to get the work done that I want to. Whereas at some point you look back and you realize that through all the chaos, through all the running around, through all the sense of not having enough time to do anything, you actually did accomplish something like what you set out to do. And that it would only have been possible uh, in that flux, in that sense of not really feeling that you knew what it was that you are doing. And that's something that Robinson Jeffers' poem says to me at this moment, especially if we're thinking about how to live, what to do. This last poem in this batch comes from the American poet Louise Glick, who was born in 1943. And this is a poem of hers called Summer Night. I could have easily included this one in last week's batch about love poems, but uh, check this one out. I just came across this again today, and it is just about perfect. It says this. Orderly and out of long habit, my heart continues to beat. I hear it nights when I wake over the mild sound of the air conditioner, as I used to hear it over the beloved's heart, or variety of hearts, owing to there having been several. And as it beats, it continues to drum up ridiculous emotion. So many passionate letters never sent, so many urgent journeys conceived of on summer nights, surprise visits to men who were nearly complete strangers, the tickets never bought, the letters never stamped, and pride spared, and the life, in a sense, never completely lived, and the art always in some danger of growing repetitious. Why not? Why not? Why should my poems not imitate my life, whose lesson is not the apotheosis, but the pattern, whose meaning is not in the gesture, but in the inertia, the reverie, desire, loneliness, wind in the flowering almond, surely these are the great, the inexhaustible subjects to which my predecessors apprenticed themselves. I hear them echo in my own heart, disguised as convention. Balm of the summer night, balm of the ordinary, imperial joy and sorrow of human existence, 
the dreamed as well as the lived? What could be dearer than this, given the closeness of death? And this is in one of her, her later poems. Uh, what could be dearer than this, given the closeness of death? I love how she says, I hear these things, these apparently, uh, um, these inexhaustible things echoing in my own heart, disguised as convention. It's very easy to dismiss them as convention when in fact they are the balm of the ordinary. They are the imperial joy and sorrow, as she says, of human existence. This is something I wish I had read also when I was 17. The idea that you can drum up ridiculous emotions when you think that just experience and emotion uh, is its own justification, you might say. Um, and, but why not? Why not? Why should my poems not imitate my life? I've come across many poets, and I guess the, the example that comes to mind right now is actually the historian Peter Aykroyd, who lived for a long time with uh, his boyfriend, and after he died, I think in the mid-90s, um, of AIDS. I think Peter Ackroyd has been pretty uh, open about saying he's basically been celibate ever since then. Um, I remember hearing John Cleese uh, in an interview a while ago being asked if uh, he was talking about Wagner and he was asked uh, that, you know, that music from Tristan and Isolde, the very romantic music, are you a romantic person? And he says something like, well, when I was younger, I thought that uh, that was very important, but I don't anymore. Uh, this is something indeed that could have gone with the love episode last week. But it is that idea that maybe that just isn't for everybody. Maybe the, uh, the desire, the loneliness, the wind and the flowering almond, maybe that really is the thing for many people and they just don't realize it or they've just never been told that such a thing is even possible or they just feel bizarre because where is that in primetime TV? Where is it even in literary novels? Uh, where is it uh, on social media? Um, none of these things that we encounter all the time, none of these things that want to be seen and heard and liked and reacted to and uh, just stomped on and stomped on endlessly, notice, notice, notice. Uh, none of that has anything to do with, uh, not in the gesture, but in the inertia, the reverie. And so on the one sense, on the one hand, you have someone sitting alone at a cafe by themselves day after day after day. And you can say perhaps they're lonely but then you can also read a poem like this and say, perhaps they want to be lonely. Perhaps they like being lonely. Perhaps it is desire, loneliness, the wind and the flowering almond. Let's just read that last uh, second half of this poem one more time and we'll see what comes up next. Why not? Why not? Why should my poems not imitate my life? whose lesson is not the apotheosis, but the pattern, whose meaning is not in the gesture, 
but in the inertia, the reverie. Desire, loneliness, wind and the flowering almond, surely these are the great, the inexhaustible subjects to which my predecessors apprenticed themselves. I hear them echo in my own heart, disguised as convention. Balm of the summer night, balm of the ordinary, imperial joy and sorrow of human existence, the dreamed as well as the lived. What could be dearer than this, given the closeness of death? And I'll just add here, what could be dearer than this, even for someone who is not near death? What uh, good can this lesson be to someone who is 17, who is 25, who is 35, who is 43, who is maybe just 50? Uh, what kind of lesson can a poem like this possibly teach? And for this last batch of poems, this last bit that I will share before I go on a bit of a hiatus with uh, this podcast, the first of them will come from W.B. Yeats, who lived from 1865 to 1939. This is a poem that comes from his 1919 book, The Wild Swans at Cool. And this is a poem called A Prayer on Going Into My House. God, grant a blessing on this tower and cottage, and on my heirs, if all remain unspoiled, no table or chair or stool, not simple enough for shepherd lads in Galilee, and grant that I myself, for portions of the year, may handle nothing, and set eyes and nothing, but what the great and passionate have used throughout so many varying centuries, we take it for the norm. Yet, should I dream, Sinbad the sailors brought a painted chest or image from beyond the lodestone mountains, that dream is a norm. And should some limb of the devil destroy the view by cutting down an ash that shades the road, or setting up a cottage, planned in a government office, shorten his life, manacle his soul upon the Red Sea bottom. That took a bit of a turn there at the end, didn't it? Uh, do not cut down my trees, do not ruin my view, or I will put you in a poem and say, manacle his soul upon the Red Sea bottom. I love that he says, um, during the portion of the year, May I handle nothing and set eyes on nothing but what the great and the passionate have used throughout so many varying centuries, we take it for the norm. There's two things going on there. On the one hand, he seems to be saying, I have this house, I have this place of sanctuary and of sanctity for myself, and I want to fill it with special things. But at the same time, those special things... Um, 
have been used throughout so many varying centuries that we take it for the norm. He seems to both be saying that perhaps there are everyday things that have persisted through the centuries that are the everyday norm, but also, and this might be closer to what at least someone like Yeats means, is uh, those monuments of unaging intellect. I think that's the line in Sailing to Byzantium. He also certainly believed in a uh, in a layer, perhaps something like Jung's archetypes of the collective unconscious, a sort of humming layer beneath everything that uh, that all cultural and historical and religious life depend on, but people just don't realize it, and that may have been part of Yeats's mysticism. But I love that he just felt the need to write a prayer on going into my house. And this next one comes from, at least the anthology that I have, says that this was written by either Emily Bronte or Charlotte Bronte. It's not really quite sure who. Um, the other, uh, uh, a different anthology I found just attributed it to Charlotte Bronte, so I will do that. And she lived from 1816 to 1855. And this is a poem called Often Rebuked, Yet Always Back Returning. Let's see what she says. Often rebuked, yet always back returning to those first feelings that were born with me and leaving busy chase of wealth and learning for idle dreams of things which cannot be. Today, I will seek not the shadowy region, its unsustaining vastness waxes drear, and visions rising, legion after legion, bring the unreal world too strangely near. I'll walk, but not in old heroic traces, and not in paths of high mortality, and not among the half-distinguished faces, the clouded forms of long-past history. I'll walk where my own nature would be leading. It vexes me to choose another guide, where the gray flocks and the ferny glens are feeding, where the wild wind blows on the mountainside. What have those lonely mountains worth revealing? More glory and more grief than I can tell. The earth that wakes one human heart to feeling can center both the worlds of heaven and hell. And that's a great lesson to learn as well, is that uh, we cannot avoid grief, can we? More glory and more grief than I can tell. Uh, what Robinson Jeffers was saying yesterday, uh, it's not happiness. Uh, happiness is not the thing. Uh, from a few episodes ago, what did Van Gogh say? Um, I was put here not to be happy, but to be honest. This strikes me as a very honest poem by whichever Bronte's sister was the one who wrote it. And like the Seamus Heaney poem that I read earlier, it goes back to those first feelings that were born with me, that 48-poem sequence that I mentioned. If you go through those, those poems by Seamus Heaney, that sequence called Squarings, uh, you will find that that is the well that he is pulling from 
those first feelings that were born with me? What is it in us that makes us constantly go back to the things in our childhood, go back to the moments where we first realized what things were, what words were, um, what important things could be? What is it about those earliest images, those earliest impressions that are so powerful and so strong that they make us want to leave the life that we are living now, which is filled with tangible things that you can hold and touch and smell and taste and go among, even if it's an unhappy life, still it's tangible. Um, you can go out and do something. You can, even if it's someone you don't get along with anymore, you can go out and pick a fight. It's very tangible. But instead, you go back to your memories, to these things that are close to you. And that brings up Jung as well, doesn't it? The, uh, the dream of the house that Carl Jung had while sailing back to Europe from America, I think in 1909, where he begins at the top of the house, and it's the modern day, and as he goes down and down and down, the, each story of the house goes back in time, back in time, until he is down in the basement, uh, down past a Roman crypt, down into the uh, utter depths of history. Um, and that is a, a larger cultural journey, but still, it's the same thing. What is, the, what is this obsession with origins and wanting to get back to them? As Charlotte Bronte says here, uh, she's wondering where she could go. She's wondering what she should be doing. She knows that she wants to leave the busy chase of wealth and learning. She wants to leave that place of idle dreams of things which cannot be. Um, and one of the places she imagines is the Lonely Mountains. She's willing to give all these things up to go to these Lonely Mountains where the gray flocks and the ferny glens are feeding, where the wild wind blows on the mountainside. And what does she say? Again, she is surrounded by something tangible. She's surrounded by the education that she's had. She's surrounded, even if the dreams are idle, she is surrounded by idle dreams. And it's sometimes nice to just, just sit back and daydream about whatever your inspiration and aspirations used to be, the busy chase of wealth and learning. Um, and, it and it would have been a big deal for someone like Emily or Charlotte Bronte to have to be able to talk about learning at all for themselves. And now she is talking about going somewhere where that doesn't matter. And what does she say? What have those lonely mountains worth revealing? She doesn't even know, but she's willing to go there um, because, because uh, whatever that line is in William Blake, I must uh, create my own system and not be ruled by another man's. It's basically that impulse, isn't it? It doesn't matter what the other man's system is. It could be the most beautiful system in the world. Um, I don't want to read another person's poetry. I want to write my own, no matter how good these other poems are, etc. Um, and she says, Charlotte Bronte says, I will walk where my own nature would be leading. It vexes me to choose another guide. You can call that stubbornness. Uh, willfulness, confidence, whatever, but at some point we all seem to want to go back to that place. 
uh, go back to that place before we sort of knew the, how things go, the way the world actually works, to a place where the images perhaps seemed pure or powerful, more powerful than they can be now. I would only say that if you have those memories of childhood, and if we go along with what these other poems have said, um, there, there is no way of going back home again, is there? There's not a way of truly leaving the world unless you're a monk, unless you're, or unless you're someone with the means to live off of the grid. For the rest of us, for the rest of us mortals, we have to find a way to do what Charlotte Bronte is saying, but to also perhaps do it uh, in everyday life as well. Or even these days, to just take a weekend or a week or two weeks to do it. This last poem that I'll read comes from a wonderful poet named Henry Vaughan, who lived from 1621 to 1695. And it was a great surprise to come upon Henry Vaughan. Uh, looking through the metaphysical poets, you see the usuals, George Herbert, John Donne, and others. And I never heard anyone say, go and read this guy, Henry Vaughan, but he seems to be my favorite among these folks. And uh, this is a poem uh, that is just called Man or Humanity. And this is what the poem says. Weighing the steadfastness and state of some mean things which here below reside, where birds like watchful clocks the noiseless date and intercourse of times divide, where bees at night get home in hive, and flowers early as well as late, rise with the sun and set in the same bowers. The regularity of all things is what he is admiring here. The regularity of nature that is like the watchful clocks. I would, said I, I would, said I, my God would give the staidness of these things to man. For these, to his divine appointments ever cleave, and no new business breaks their peace. The birds nor sow nor reap, yet sup and dine. The flowers without clothes live, yet Solomon was never dressed so fine. Man hath still either toys or care. He hath no root, nor to one place is tied, but ever restless and irregular, about this earth doth run and ride. He knows he hath a home, but scarce knows where. He says it is so far that he hath quite forgot how to go there. He knocks at all doors, strays and roams, nay, hath not so much wit as some stones have, which in the darkest night point to their homes. By some hid sense their maker gave. Man is the shuttle to whose winding quest and passage through these looms God ordered motion, but ordained no rest. And that's a good poem to end on for this sequence, isn't it? He comes around to admitting that, doesn't he, Henry Vaughan? Uh, it's the old saw. I, be I, I bet it was an old saw in the middle of the 17th century when Henry Vaughan wrote this. Uh, to all the poets who knew their New Testament very well, um, 
about how Solomon was never dressed so fine as all the flowers, etc. Uh, all the animals uh, take care of themselves. E even Whitman gets on that boat. And that, to me, is always the weakest part of Whitman when he wishes that we can go off and be like the animals. The whole point of Whitman is that uh, you are trying to find something that is animalistic in bringing it into nature, isn't it? And Henry Vaughan seems to see that as well. Um, ever restless and irregular. What, what, uh, <laughs> what phrase is more 2023 than human beings hath still either toys or care? Isn't that what Emily Bronte is talking about? Uh, wealth or learning? Just the piling up of stuff, the crowding around us with uh, things, the hoarding of things that we think we need and things that we think we need to do. And it's wonderful that he comes around to just admitting God ordered motion, but ordained no rest. What does that mean? So much of, of Christianity, so much of religion as a whole, when you get down to it, if it gets uh, popular and organized enough, you come around to uh, telling your flock or telling your fellow parishioners or telling anyone who's gathered in front of you to listen uh, when you want to tell them something comforting, you always come around to saying, uh, God or the universe or whatever it is, there is rest for us somewhere. If we pray the prayers, if we come to services, if we read whatever scripture it is, if we uh, do the things, the habitual things, as I said in the, the last episode or the, the poem from Louise Glick, uh, the whole idea of, well, if you just move the pieces around a bit, everything will be fine, I promise. And uh, it treats all of us as if we're five-year-olds, but even five-year-olds know that when you tell them everything's going to be all right, they know that's a lie. And we know it's a lie when we hear it, but it's nice to see it put into a poem, isn't it? God ordered motion, but ordained no rest. God ordered motion... God ordered, uh, if you want to say, me starting this podcast in October of 2020 and to just start it like a wheel or spin it like a top until this very night when I'm finally taking a break. Um, it's rest, sure. It's not going to be rest for very long. And so I hope to see you on the other side at whatever next episode it is and whenever that may be. And for those of you who have been listening up until this point, I appreciate it as always, and have a good night. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.